Decarbonizing the energy sector of modern day will be one of the most challenging obstacles of our time, but it will also present an opportunity for pioneers to achieve the impossible. Energy demand is increasing, and so is the need to produce that energy sustainably so we can reach our net zero goals. This is the Core Knowledge Podcast, where we sit down with the leaders and innovators in the geothermal energy space, tackling the challenges of modern day in order to make geothermal everywhere a reality for tomorrow. From shallow to deep, heat to electricity, and even healthcare to agriculture, we will bring to light the many benefits of geothermal. Join us as we journey across the globe to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and this is the show we're on a quest to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. And today I'm here in Reno, Nevada for the Geothermal Rising Conference. Um, so all those messages you heard about me um, coming to this conference for months on end on the podcast, it's finally real and it's happening. Uh, and we are sitting down for our first live in-person interview of the conference and really excited to not only dive into just some of the content that's being covered here at the conference and why we're here, obviously for geothermal, but beyond that. Um, but today uh, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Annie Van Horn and John Muir from Green Fire Energy. Uh, and just, you guys have obviously heard Green Fire on the show before, but today we're gonna be taking a little different angle and focusing on what they have brought to GRC, uh, which is kind of focusing on geothermal as a premium power source and kind of are gonna dig into what they mean behind that, what that is, what are some of the drivers, the market drivers, and what are some of the key components of geothermal that make it a premium power source. So first things first, um, let's just, yeah, I'll, I'll start out with, like I always do, kind of brief introductions to each of you. So we'll just start with John, kind of introduce uh, yourself and how you ended up working with Green Fire in, in the geothermal space. Today's episode is brought to you by JRG Energy. A special thank you to our inaugural Core Knowledge podcast sponsor. JRG Energy is a renewable energy project management consultancy working on geothermal projects around the world, whose mission is to provide value and develop relationships through a full suite of specialized services for the global renewable energy market. They are driven by innovation, experience, and integrity, and strive daily to display these values through all aspects of their work. JRG Energy provides customized energy solutions, project management, engineering, technical support, consulting, and training for the renewable energy sector. JRG Energy has an extensive geothermal portfolio of projects around the world, ranging from World Bank reports to well intervention work, and they support the core knowledge mission to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. If you want to find out more, you can visit www.jrgenergy.com. JRG Energy, delivering solutions today for a better tomorrow. Thank you, Nick. Yes, I'm John Muir. I'm Senior Vice President of Business Development at Green Fire Energy. And I came at, uh, Green, uh, at Geothermal from a kind of strange direction. Most of my career has been in cybersecurity. Uh, but after about 25 years of that, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do something where something happens instead of trying to prevent things from happening? Uh, and it turned out that uh, my brother's a geologist and had been studying geothermal and, and asked me for a little help uh, in developing the idea. And uh, 
Yeah, and here I am. <laughs> but uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today, and we're looking forward to a great conversation. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Andy? Uh, I have been a consultant in the energy and environmental uh, industries for over 40 years, and in that time I have evaluated technologies and markets and tried to approve markets and regulatory policies. But in the end, we all need better technologies that can bring us to our energy and environmental goals. And as you will tell, as we will tell you today, and as everyone knows, geothermal energy has the attributes. And during my career, I've been involved several times with geothermal energy, including three different times with the geysers, which is the world's largest geothermal plant. And now Green Fire Energy is helping to work with Calpine uh, to improve that technology in, in the plant. And I first got involved with Green Fire in 2014 and have played several different roles, but now we're in a position where we're actually commercializing the technology and telling people in, in markets that we do have a premium technology with attributes that none of the other renewables have. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, I mean, and exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So you guys are obviously here at Geothermal Rising for many reasons, not just to present, but I want to just open it maybe with the most generic question of what we'll talk about today, but just, you know, for those, obviously they've listened to this podcast, they know that I talk about geothermal as being a viable option and one we need to pay attention to. We're obviously passionate about it, think that it deserves more attention, but let's kind of take away just the pure emotion or passion and talk about Truly, you know, when we're talking about the energy matrix and the energy economy and, and looking at the future ahead, you know, why beyond just saying electrons on the grid, which is an obvious thing, but, you know, let's, let's really break it down of why, like what makes geothermal truly a premium power source that you can go to legislators with or utilities with and, and describe to them and say, like, you should be desiring this because of X, you know, let's just kind of break down what coming from your perspective what are some of those attributes and things that we're talking about? Well, thank you. That's, that is a broad question. And I think there's really three layers to it. There's the company level. Uh, I will give you an example of a company in Texas that uh, suffered through the power shortage down there and had, they said, five or 6,000 people out of work for something like uh, one to two weeks. Plus, they lost essential equipment, took them six months to uh, repair. And I was uh, asked by their uh, energy manager if we would be able to put a geothermal project there because they've been paying about six cents a kilowatt hour. They'd be willing to pay 10 if they had an assured power source. Yeah. So that's kind of at the company level. Uh, at the national level, uh, we have uh, countries uh, right now struggling with energy assurance. You see that with the Ukraine situation uh, in Germany and other parts of Europe. We see it with Taiwan being concerned about uh, uh, China. There's, uh, and everyone is looking inward and saying, what if? Yeah. And they realize, of course, that now energy, uh, energy is currency, energy is power, energy is essential to, to the, the functions of government. And they simply can no longer countenance the fact that they might be cut off somehow. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. And anything you'd like to add to the broad question? Well, the energy security and other aspects have not been properly recognized. Yeah. But the power grid has certain requirements and technologies that interconnect with that and provide power to the wholesale markets need to supply uh, voltage support. They need to supply ramping. Uh, 
and uh, frequency. So those are essential elements. But beyond that, there's reliability. 24-7, people expect when they turn on the lights that the power is there. Yeah. There needs to be resilience because, as we now know, um, weather events, climate changes, and international security events can compromise grids. And sources like geothermal energy are essentially local and reliable and don't cross borders and don't require fuel transportation. So those, among the other grids we'll be talking about, the other, other attributes, are real reasons why the power grid needs to have what I call resilient, continuous power. Yeah. And that's what geothermal brings to the power grid. Yeah. If I could add to that, there have been technical papers written that uh, describe that in 2017, the real value of a, geo, uh, of a megawatt of geothermal power exceeded the, uh, the value of a megawatt of solar, mm. and that that value differential has con is continuing to increase and will increase. And in fact, uh, we have some data that shows that the greater the penetration of wind and solar into the grid, the more valuable the stable, continuous, re resilient, and reliable power of geothermal becomes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one way to look at this is what if you have one megawatt of continuous geothermal power and you say, I, I trust that at 100% over a 24-hour period, how much solar and how much batteries would you need to have that same level of assurance? Yeah. Uh, we've been working with a company called Accelerex out of Boston, a uh, uh, very in intriguing company. And they calculated that depending on the weather, it would be something like 6 to 12 megawatts of solar plus 5 or 6 megawatts of storage wow. to equal that 1 megawatt of geothermal. Now, you add the capex of all that together, and you see geothermal has a clear capex advantage. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think all, I mean, that's the beauty of this is that I think you could talk for for a long time and, and for really, you know, I think the passion comes out of saying that, you know, and I was speaking with Andy even before this about the word baseload. And I know that's sometimes what we refer to it as, but I think this conversation and this idea of premium power source is a good thing to talk about because we're kind of stripping out instead of just saying baseload and kind of using that as the incumbent or encompassing everything, it's, it's necessary to talk about like exactly what you're mentioning, John, is the fact that, yeah, baseload is great. That's part of the 24-7 piece, but it's also that geothermal isn't, you know, a one-trick pony. I mean, geothermal can be scaled or it can be, like, it can be flexed. It can be mm -hmm. brought down or brought up based on yeah. peak demands or to, uh, you know, to address certain needs of the grid um, or just the nature of, yeah, like you mentioned, the capex is expensive, but the the yeah resilient nature of when winter storm Erie comes in or when hurricanes come on the coast, I think you can't really put a price on that. The overall life cycle costs, when yeah, you filled in the life cycle costs are less because of the reliability of geothermal. The fact that it provides stable pricing. Yeah, gas markets have been all over all, for decades. They've are they're yeah. always volatile. Yeah, and other markets are volatile. So. If you have a geothermal facility that's in the ground, its capital costs and operating costs are pretty predictable over time. Yeah. And so stable pricing is something that people would like to have, as well as environmentally preferable, sustainable resource. And renewable power has taken the, the uh, front seat here. Yeah. But 
of the renewable power sources, geothermal is the only one that really provides 24-7 reliability and resilience and energy security. Yeah. You know, uh, in our conversation today, I think Andy coined a term that we're going to be working with, you know, uh, and that would be resilient continuous power, mm-hmm. yeah. okay, R- RCP. And, and the point here is that we've been using levelized cost of energy as, as the measuring stick for how good, uh, how economically attractive a resource is. But that has... Uh, it, uh, it, it's an instantaneous uh, cost or or cost, yes, and it it doesn't take into account daily swings and so forth. Yeah. So what we need to do actually is to come up with a new metric, uh, but we don't want to call it baseload because it's a bigger concept than that. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to have to come up with the right term. But the idea is the geothermal industry needs to get behind a way of looking at the market that does, that does not penalize geothermal with respect to wind and solar. Yeah. And using that measuring stick, uh, then politicians, the, the uh, regulators can have a clear way of saying, this is, uh, this is a, a beneficial way to go. This is superior to what we've been doing. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. Go ahead, Andy. Well, I was going to say, typically the markets, for example, the regional transmission organizations or the independent the ISOs, uh, yeah. basically around the U.S. There may, there may be five major ones, but each one of those five, which would be the Cal ISO, the MISO in the Midwest, the New England Power Pool, and Texas ERCOT, which is largely separate, they all priced capacity, energy, and ancillary services differently. Yeah. And... That's fine, but that indicates the unique nature of the grids in each place. And I think we need to figure out how to reprice the wholesale markets so that we can understand how we can create a capacity mix that is more reliable and is resilient and sustainable. No, I think that's the the key is, or I mean, I know there's no answer to this. This is just the kind of something that's been on my mind even pre this conference, but even after... Uh, one of those sessions this morning in the idea of how, you know, obviously messaging is important for geothermal and, and getting the correct message out there about what it is, which involves all these points and all of this about premium power source. But, you know, also part of that messaging is how what you're mentioning, Andy, is this, you know, how do we as the industry come together and create, you know, something from within to then go bring to legislation or to the markets or to the utilities to kind of express to them, hey, this is not just us trying to create something that's only beneficial to us. This is just a new way of taking this out and saying, hey, LCOE no longer gives us a proper view of things and is hurting, and in, in the long run, hurting you and your operations and plants because you can't predict the way you'd like to. And also you're having to use stored energy when something goes down or you're having to pull something out and use more money instead of just being able to say, hey, I've got a consistent 50 megawatts or whatever it is that I just know that it's there. And if I want to tailor that down a little bit and get some cheaper wind and solar for this short little period and then bring back my baseload, I can. But that's, you know, I guess we'll just do opinions here since there's no, we don't have an answer yet. But, you know, I guess from the research you're doing and what you're presenting, how does how does geothermal as an industry kind of help push for this and get this uh, kind of re- yeah, realized to where we can really start getting advancement in a leg up? That's an interesting question. Uh, I, I was in a workshop all day Saturday with uh, other geothermal companies and some big uh, geothermal operators, and we talked specifically about this problem. 
because everyone has to sort of justify what they're charging to the regulators. And we don't have the right language or measuring stick for that. And so I think what's going to have to happen is um, uh, I think we're going to have to have sort of a working group to come out and propose a standard way uh, of replacing LCOE uh, for these kinds of discussions. Uh, and then uh, I, I've learned that uh, working with the state regulators is typically the best way to go. National is, is too abstract. Yeah. But when you get to the people who are actually signing contracts and things and making decisions about uh, local power sources, uh, if you can win them over, then then you uh, really start to make progress. Yeah. And, and we have to basically think about power purchase agreements, which typically solar and wind have been very successful in signing those because they have low marginal operating costs. And so does geothermal, by the way. Yeah. But where geothermal is different, it's had longer times to site, license, permit, and to build the facilities, which, of course, for capital investment, increases the cost. Yeah. So we need to get the permitting periods reduced, recognizing that there can be some pro programmatic type environmental impact statements and other ways of, of reducing the cost of geothermal. All the drilling work that's now going on and it's being talked about at this conference is beneficial to all forms and technologies of geothermal and, and closed loop in, in particular yeah. because we have some advantages as closed loop, um, less water consumption and less reduced risk. Uh, there have been some dry wells in geothermal but closed loop requires only the heat. Yeah. And obviously you have to go deep enough to get it hot enough, but we're showing that it can be done in places like Japan and the Philippines, and hopefully now as we're working with Calpine at the geysers. So it's a, it's a technology that needs RD&D and it's being developed, but because it has all these great attributes that we can talk about, um, it should be a part of the energy mix to complement wind, solar, coal, whatever is there, yeah. and to be a part that we can depend on to provide the resilience and reliability. Yeah. Uh, and there's a sense of urgency around this, too, because for all of our work and all the development in the geothermal sector, we're actually losing market share mm. compared to other uh, technology, energy technologies. Yeah. So. Uh, we we have no, don't have the luxury of uh, of taking a long time. We need to really think how we accelerate the geothermal industry itself. And uh, of course, you know, there's standard answers to those questions. But uh, we believe at Greenfire that one of the important ways is working with the existing stock of geothermal operations. Yeah. Uh, the USGS uh, has determined that. On average, uh, geothermal companies only use something like 10 to 10 to 20 percent max of the power uh, of the energy they have over a, a successful 30-year run, and the rest is, is just un they can't tap it with conventional technology. So, if we can improve the technology and get a greater percentage out of the uh, areas that have already been developed, we can move much faster than trying to do greenfield projects. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And I mean, I think along those lines, which, you know, I'll, I'll make this more of just a statement. I mean, and for sure, welcome feedback before we kind of jump into um, some of the how closed loop can answer some of these, you know, or it kind of, you know, exemplify these traits we're talking about. But, you know, along those lines of proper cost metrics and measuring sticks, I've been 
kind of my mind has been on it ever since the winter storm in Texas that there's been articles about how consumers even were willing to, when interviewed upon, you know, post all of this, they were, they were willing to pay more money for their bill. If like the, the question was like, would you pay a little more if you knew that when this happened, you would have not lost your power and et cetera. And, you know, not that it was a surprise to me, but it was one of these things that is almost sitting on a silver platter here in this space where people were like, yeah, I'd pay 30 to 40% more, which may even be higher than what you need. But I'm just saying they were willing to pay more if someone could tell them that no more brownouts, no more blackouts, you know, not maybe not ever, but like obviously the, the amount of that would significantly reduce. And then when a winter storm hits or when Hurricane Harvey comes through Houston or the next one in Louisiana, that your grids are resilient and especially for infrastructures like hospitals or things that need uh, to be able to not have to rely on the utilities, you know. So I think it just runs through my mind of, you know, how do we get that message I mean, the consumers are part of it, right? But I think the utilities are on the other end of that. If you hear the voice from the consumer saying we would pay more, but I understand every business wants to make money. So I get that there's a little bit of that tug of war of how do you ensure them that it is money making for them. I'm glad you brought that up because I said there were three levels. So there was a national and there's sort of the organization level, but there's a very personal level. People are realizing that without appropriate power, they're in the dark. Yeah. They don't have the internet. They uh, can't buy gas. Yeah. They can't buy groceries. And there's a real, uh, I think, fear factor of what would happen if. And uh, I think the, uh, the power suppliers need to respond to that. They need to, uh, to be forthright and saying, here's what we're doing to ensure that you will not lose power. It will cost. Uh, it may cost more in, in some areas or uh, in, in some ways. But I think people are willing to bear that uh, because the alternative is almost unthinkable. Yeah. And we have had just recently, obviously this year and last, the rolling blackouts in California, the uh, cold snap blackouts that lasted for days in Texas. And when the North Sea wind didn't blow, uh, England was without uh, adequate power resources. And now we're seeing that the whole European continent is in trouble because... Of that, So those are examples, but there is another overriding reason that has brought people and brought me to green fire and to uh, geothermal power, and that is global warming. Yeah. And there are countries around the world that need to move off of coal and need to move off of fossil fuels in order to reach the kind of targets that they're claiming they can reach and the kind of targets that are necessary to avoid a two degrees centigrade uh, increase in global temperatures. Now, we might not be able to do that, but we certainly won't be able to do it without clean, carbon-free geothermal power. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's that's all great. And, you know, we could, yeah, we could go for days on that subject because it keeps me up at night sometimes with just this idea of how we, you know, utilities, you know, well, there's also just a level of, as you mentioned, John, of urgency and, pro, you know, needing to be more proactive with the, you can't really say, well, we'll get there when that time comes. It's more of, you know, maybe it is a little more expensive today, but, you know, it'll, the benefits will be, will far outweigh that little extra cost we pay. So I kind of want to just shift to closed loop before we, you know, run out of time just to give, a, obviously some people will know about it on the show and will know some of the benefits, but I kind of just want to hear from both of you the uh, along this topic, obviously, of premium power source, you know, there are lots of ways to extract geothermal, but, you know, as you mentioned, using existing infrastructure, but even if you don't have anything there, you know, how is closed loop positioned to kind of 
take advantage of some of these bullet points we're talking about, but also in a more rap, sometimes in a more rapid pace to help get geothermal sort of ahead of the curve on the, you know, get on the grid, get in the share a little bit quicker than maybe relying on pure frontier exploration or new technologies. Hey there, everybody. It's your host, Nick Sestari. Just wanted to take a break here uh, from this episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in thus far. Hope you're enjoying uh, this wonderful episode. I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by JRG Energy, delivering solutions today for a better tomorrow. So thank you, JRG Energy, and enjoy the rest of this amazing episode. And thank you for your support. I think the answer is to realize that the problems that have kept the geothermal industries somewhat limited are, are both technical and business model. And the high risk with high capital costs up front have really uh, been difficult to deal with, particularly the uncertainty as to how much power a particular project will produce. I think we're all familiar with uh, many of the geothermal operators are operating below base yeah. <laughs> nameplate capacity and 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 that concerns investors concerns uh, the public and uh, it has given uh, geothermal a, a somewhat risky uh, taste to it so one of the things about closed loop that attracted me was was the idea of moving from sort of a wild catting uh, type of industry to a more repeatable industrial process. And Andy and I, uh, he, he's a physicist by background. Uh, we, we talk about uh, conventional geothermal is a, basically a three-variable process, heat, permeability, and water. Yeah. And it, it's hard to solve a three-variable equation. But if you can just say, if we can find enough heat, we're, we're in business, that makes it a lot easier. And it takes a lot of risk out of the drilling because heat is much more uniformly distributed than is permeability in water. Yeah. So we have a bigger target, a lot less risk, and we can, and it's much more repeatable. And there is the, the business model. And clearly, geothermal has not gotten the research and development funds that other technologies have had. And literally, we're factors 10 or 100 below, and so it just it needs more. But in that process, there are, as John mentioned, existing geothermal operators who have wells that for one reason or another are not producing to capacity. Closed loop can work with some of those wells to retrofit them and bring them back into production. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, the oil and gas industry has tens of millions hmm. of oil and gas wells around the world that need to be plugged and abandoned at costs of several hundred thousand each. Yeah. And they're not being plugged and abandoned. But some of them, not very many, but some of them, uh, enough to do business, could be retrofit with, if they are on a heat resource, those particular resources and those pipes in those fields could generate geothermal power that would replace diesel pump power or be useful for the grid. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the, that's the you know, the thing about... The closed loop that, you know, similar to what you're mentioning, I've always liked is the same the same thing that it's, uh, well, there's a lot less risk and it, and it allows you to kind of just take advantage of what exists today. Like you mentioned, I think they can't stress that enough of, you know, we need we need all of the 
technologies and geothermal. We need all of the new greenfield and, and kind of advanced technologies that may be here by 2030, 2035. But we also need to get some stuff rolling and the ball moving in order for even the investment to come in 2035 or for the utilities to even take it seriously enough for the legislators to continue putting more more feet forward forward or even, you know, Andy, as you mentioned, the money coming from the government. We're starting to see some momentum there, obviously, for geothermal, but I think we need to show some some successful projects or some stuff that comes from that that proves to them that this is worth you know, money being allotted to us because you can't just keep asking for it. And then we just take it and go to pure R and D only and never really put anything on the grid. So I agree fully that closed loop is an attractive, you know, concept because you can go to even producing geothermal fields and add, you know, uh, more efficiencies. And one of the interesting things that we talked about, uh, in this workshop was that even, you know, uh, after you take into account, this new metric of how you look at this uh, uh, resilient continuous power, there are still other advantages relative to other forms of renewable power that are really important. Uh, For example, land usage, much, much more economical. That you don't have waste streams out, you don't have input streams in, so the transportation corridor that uh, is non-existent, Uh, your life cycle Issues are much easier. You can cap a well and, and, and plug it. So yeah. You don't have to <laughs> recycle everything. Uh, and I think there's an important element there that the public doesn't understand geothermal and is not aware of it. But we we make the claim that closed-loop geothermal is the most benign form of renewable uh, energy uh, or power generation that there is. And we've yet to have anyone really seriously contradict that. Yeah. So we think it uh, properly presented to the public, it would be the preferred source yeah. of renewable energy. Yeah. And this is global in scope. And, yeah. of course, the, the dream would be if you have geothermal everywhere. Because geothermal heat is everywhere. It's just a matter of how deep. And then that's really economics. Yeah. But you have to consider the externalities, the life cycle, environmental impacts, the supply chain, security uh, yeah. aspects, the, the essential minerals. Geothermal can be done with conventional technology, minerals, and, and uh, yeah. So it's, it's a technology that has been around since Lardarello in 1913 started producing power, geysers in 1960. And so it's been unrecognized, but now is the time to recognize it and to produce the technologies and advance the technologies uh, that will bring geothermal to everyone's forefront. Yeah, no, and I think that's what we're, that's what we're here for, and that's what I started this for, and, and here we are a year later after starting it, and thankful to have both of you on the show, and I think that all we can do is keep having conversations like this. Obviously, the work has to keep being done and things behind the scenes with actual projects and you know business models being made, but also, I think, Truthfully, it's almost, I don't want to call it being annoying because that's wrong to say about myself, but you have to almost be in people's face over and over again because you look at some of these other energies in, in there, everywhere you go or look, it's it's on a billboard or it's on a commercial or it's, I don't know, it's somewhere, everywhere you go that's kind of in your face. Even if you're not paying full attention to it, you, you see it everywhere you go, whereas geothermal relatively hasn't done a good job at trying to reach the public in a very you know, non-technical, just personal touch type of way. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. In a, in a way, everyone knows about wind towers and, and solar panels. Uh, but when you talk about geothermal, you say the advantage is you don't see it. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's, <laughs> but, it's one of its worst, or probably its uh, biggest. You may not be aware of it, but it's there, and, and and it's not bothering you. Yeah, that's a great advantage. It is. Yeah. Well, I think um, before we close, I want to I'll do the three questions that I always do, but I also want to since we're here at the conference, I want to before we start those, just get two tidbits from each or one tidbit from each of you, just in terms of what you're you know, what you're most excited about for the rest of this conference or just what, you know, how this year feels different to you than maybe past years uh, at GRC or just, you know, something that you're kind of excited about on the, for this upcoming year or two. Well, in 1973, OPEC had a global oil embargo and the world paid attention to that. But it's been 50 years since that time. And the thing that's exciting to me about this conference is not just the technology advances, but the fact that there is a large group of young, talented, energetic people who are showing interest in our energy problems and who are bringing geothermal technology to, as I said, the forefront. And so the fact that we have an influx of people that are now committed to carbon-free, clean geothermal energy is perhaps, for me, the most exciting thing. Yeah. To me, it's that uh, geothermal has become not only an attractive alternative energy source, but in today's sort of heightened political tension world, I think it's become almost an essential power source. Yeah. And that, that sense of uh, national importance, I think, is going to propel uh, geothermal forward. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, but yeah, so I mean, well, I really, I think we got some really good tidbits uh, out of this conversation. I mean, I always get something out of these every time. Uh, and, and I even listen back to my own conversations sometimes because uh, to experience a year's worth of my own learning and see how I've progressed and my questions have changed and how even my perception of being someone who is just passionate about it has you know, grown for more than just a passion and now a, uh, you know, a drive for urgency, you know, and making it happen. So, um, yeah, well, we'll do the quick round of just questions for you two, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up so we can get back to the conference. Um, but we'll start with you, John, and we'll just go with, uh, Andy, you can follow him, but we'll just start with the, a piece of advice that you'd give to someone such as myself or a younger you or someone who's just coming out of school and doesn't really know exactly what they want to do. Well, uh, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. And I was asked this question when uh, a case was actually written at Harvard Business School about green fire energy. The students asked that question. My answer was, remember, it's a lot easier to get into business than to get out of business. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. And I would simply say that, uh, um, that, well, let me come back to the, what, what was the question again? Yeah, yeah, just a piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self or me or just someone coming out of school not sure what they really well, want to do. The first thing is is to go to school and learn a subject and and become acquainted with it. But then realize that there are so many things you do not know and cannot know. So you want to be versatile and you want to have broad approach. I started my career as a research physicist but realizing the energy and environmental problems, my most of my efforts for the last 40 years have been economics yeah. and evaluating the economics of technologies and understanding the physics and what brings a technology. So I would say 
a young person, broaden yourself, get an education, but broaden yourself afterwards and figure out how you can make that important for goals that you would like to achieve. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I love both of those, yeah. I would just add one thing. I think a good metric for a business activity that you're thinking about would be to say, if this works, does everyone win? Yeah. And if everyone wins, then you know you're onto something that's good. Yeah. No, that's a really good one. Yeah. No, I, I, that's a great, yeah, that's a great piece of advice. That's where I find myself, honestly. So, yeah, it's a great, um, yeah, well, we'll do the next one and then the last one. But the next one is just a, what's a favorite experience of yours across your career that you just have fond memories of? It can be, it can be anything, just something you look back on with super fond memories in your career. That's a hard one because I've been in business for 50 years and, uh, you know, each time you have to have satisfaction with the projects you're doing. And I've been fortunate to have projects and clients. So it would be difficult. I yeah. can't pick one moment that, uh, but I think I would say I helped design and, and implement the cap and trade market for sulfur dioxide. Okay. And uh, I led EPRI workshops around the U.S. in 1992 to implement cap and trade, which is the design for the markets for the European emission trading system, and now 25 markets around the world that do carbon trading. Oh, wow. And as well as the California Global Warming Solutions Act cap and trade program, that's those markets are, and the price of allowances and setting a price on, on SO2 allowances has helped set the road that can be done and what can be done and accomplished with uh, carbon markets. Awesome. No, that's great. For me, I think uh, the demonstration project at COSO, yeah. we spent so much time trying to figure out, will it work? Will it not work? Can we get the money for it? Um, and then to finally get there and, and to see it functioning was a thrill. And we have a picture of me and Andy there. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Steam going off. Yeah, that, that was quite a thrill, yeah, actually. Awesome. I do have one other thing that's not related to, to geothermal. It's my uh, cybersecurity background. Uh, I, I did a company uh, where we did full hard drive encryption and uh, went to a federal conference and uh, a very nice man asked to see me privately. I went outside with him and he he said, Mr. Muir, I want you to know that your product is being used for the witness protection program. Wow. If you fail, people will die. So I want you to make sure, Mr. Muir, that you're very careful and uh, that you do a good job with this product. That was a sobering day. Yeah, that's, wow. That's a, yeah, that would be a very sobering comment to hear. A good, a good comment, right? You're like, you're using my product, but also, wow, that's, uh, that's scary. But yeah. I think it, it also illustrates that becoming and participating in entrepreneurship is a laudable thing to do. Yeah. Um, we can't rely on the government for all of our services or yeah. for innovation. And so young people coming out of college should think, well, I need to get a skill set. But then taking the risk to become an entrepreneur is something that should be a part of most people's careers. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and last one we'll end with is a book recommendation. So each of you can give a all-time favorite or a recent one you've read or just anything that comes to top of mind. You know, uh, a member of our advisory board, Bob Pilko, gave me a book called Scale. Okay. Uh, one factoid that was, comes out that was fascinating is whether you look at mice or whales or everything in between, the number of heartbeats in the average lifetime is almost exactly the same. Wow. 
So whales live longer, but they have a slower heartbeat. Mice live shorter. They have a very heartbeat. You can graph it out. It's a straight line. That was wow. a fascinating that's, thing to, to, to learn. That's Wow. That's mind-blowing, actually. A, a book I would recommend to anyone is to understand the role of probability and statistics and the fact that random events can affect everyone's life. Yeah. And they do. And the book is called The Drunkard's Walk by Leonard Mladenow. Okay. And Mladenow has written a number of books that make scientific and, and mathematical concepts understandable. He gives examples of how did statistics evolve and how were they created and why they're important and why random events really do govern our lives. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Those are both great ones. Um, Nick, we can't close without thanking you for your work to promote the industry. We know it's uh, sometimes a difficult task. Uh, and uh, all of us sort of bear the common responsibility of doing something that we think is good for everybody. You're part of that. So thank oh, you. Well, thank you guys. No, I appreciate it. I've, uh, I get to sit with people such as yourself and, and uh, really just get to enjoy uh, being part of, of this. And like you said, so that everybody can win. That's, uh, that's what makes it worth doing this and putting in the effort. So, well, thanks to you both. And, and thanks to GRC, obviously, for, for just this amazing conference. Thanks to JRG for making episodes like this possible. And I uh, hope everyone out there is having a great day. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Thank you, everyone. Bye.